0: So, we're doing a um, survey of the whole Bible, and we're going book by book, um, all 66 books. And uh, I sort of labeled it, uh, we're going to do it in 10 weeks. Uh, what I, I sort of meant is 10 lessons. Um, it's actually spilling into more than 10 lessons, and it's far beyond the 10-week mark at this point. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's taking me some time, but, um, so please bear with me. So we completed the Minor Prophets last week, um, and now we're going to go into the New Testament. But before we head into the, enter the New Testament, let's talk about this period called the Intertestimonial Period, um, the period from when the last book in the Old Testament was written, which is Malachi, um, or at least we think it's Malachi, um, and then to the opening of the New Testament, which is a 400-year period. <coughs> um, I remember when I was growing up in the church, uh, I was taught that this was a silent period, right? That God was not speaking. And, um, however, uh, it was actually a very active period of. Uh, we have a lot of writings. It's called the Second Temple period um, because it was the it was a time after Solomon's Temple. Um, there were lots of documents, uh, texts, um, books like the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha just means like hidden or secret. Um, Books like the Pseudo-Epigrapha. Pseudo means false. Epigrapha means um, writings. So these are writings that were um, attributed to different people, but under like, like falsely attributed. So there's about 20 or so books like Visions of Ezra, The Revelations of Elijah, um, the Apocrypha, there's about 20 or so Apocrypha books. And um, as Protestants, like who are, who are we as Protestants? Remember in 1517, Luther um, nailed the 95 Theses um, and started the Reformation. And so we broke off from the Roman Catholic Church. And as Protestants, we reject the Apocrypha um, as canonical. Um, we think they're interesting, encouraging, helpful, Um, Certainly historically valuable, but not canonical. So let me just uh, delve into what do we mean by canonical. So the Greek word there is canon, which means rule. Um, This is an authoritative list of the books of the Bible. Uh, This is how we know that this is the word of God and not something else. Right? Um, Is, for example, a book like um, um, The Purpose Driven Life, is that canonical? No, that's not the Word of God, but it certainly can be very helpful. It could be encouraging. Um, It could be devotional reading. And so that's the way us as Protestants think of the Apocrypha and the Sudi Epigrapha. Um, So the, the canon, the canonical books of the Bible, right, is 39 books of the Old Testament and then 27 books of the New Testament, which equals 66 books, right? And we think of the canon as closed, right? We don't add extra additional books to the Bible. That's it. Um, Protestants and Catholics are agreed on the 27 books of the New Testament. There's no disagreement on this issue. However, we disagree on the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Roman Catholics add seven additional books, so, they have, third, uh, they have 46 Old Testament books uh, like, books like. or let me just tell you what they are. They're Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wis- the Book of Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch. So, let's, um, let me just briefly go through a little bit of the history of how this happened and then explain to you why we as Protestants we dr- re- reject, reject the Apocrypha. The Roman Catholics do not accept the pseudoepigrapha as canonical. They 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 look at it just the same way that we Protestants do, which is um, interesting, historically valuable, um, sometimes devotional, but not the Word of God. Okay. So what what do I mean by canon? Let me just put a fine point on it. This is the Word of God, right? Or another way to to state it is this is Scripture, right? Okay. So here's the story. Um. After the the conquest of uh, Jerusalem uh, and after the conquest of uh, northern Israel, God's people, the Israelites, were scattered throughout the ancient world. A lot of them were taken into exile into Babylon, but uh, a great many of them were just scattered throughout uh, the known ancient world. And so this is the uh, diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, And at this time, you know, uh, the world, the known world, was mostly Greek-speaking. So a great many of these Jews basically spoke Greek, but not Hebrew. Um, Sort of like immigrant kids, right? Their parents speak the mother language, but then eventually you assimilate to the um, surrounding culture. So they want to translate the Hebrew Bible into... The local, the, the, the common language, which would be which would be Greek. So around 200 BC, supposedly this is sort of a legendary story. 70 wise scholars in Alexandria. This is why it's called the Septuagint. Sept means uh, 70. Translated uh, the entire Hebrew Bible. In addition, they translated the Apocrypha. So they added the in, in the Apocrypha as a helpful, encouraging. Devotional reading, but uh, but but this was not considered to be the Hebrew Bible um, in the ancient world, right? So, so let me let me um, let me write the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible was called the Tanakh. Um, the Tanakh is actually an acronym. Uh, for the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And then, um, so, they added in the Apocrypha, and then this combined translational work in Greek became the Septuagint. Okay, let me just write Sept. Um, Then, oh, okay, so uh, the Septuagint was very, very important because it was widely read. In fact, if you look at the uh, Greek New Testament, a lot of the Old Testament quotations actually just come from the Septuagint. So it was considered to be a, v- a well-regarded, well-respected translation um, and read by both uh, Jews and uh, uh, Christians, Greek Christians. And then about 400 AD, the language again is changing. You know, uh, a great uh, portion of the Western uh, Mediterranean world speaks Latin, not Greek. So another translation was done. This would be, Do you guys know the name of the Latin translation of the Bible? The Vulgate? Um, So the Vulgate translated by Jerome. He took the Septuagint, uh, translated the Hebrew Bible plus the New Testament, and then threw in not all, but seven of the Apocrypha. So he picked out seven books that he thought was particularly helpful and interesting to include in this translation, right? And then, um, in the middle of the Reformation, this would be in the 1600s, the Council of Trent, a Roman Catholic Council, decided, finally, that uh, the Old Testament includes the Apocrypha, these seven books of the Apocrypha, okay? So that's the whole history. That's the messy history of it. So So what happened is, uh, the reason why the Council of Trent uh, picked the Apocrypha, I mean, the, the reason why the Council of Trent um, officialized it in a council meeting is that they were reacting against the Protestants. The Protestants rejected the Apocrypha. Um, and the reason for, uh, the, the argument for that is that um, it's not in the Hebrew Bible. This is Jesus's Bible. So let me just put, let me put a very fine point on this. This is the Bible that Jesus read. This is the Old Testament scriptures that is constantly referred to in the New Testament, New Testament writings. Um, and it's not quoted anywhere by Jesus or the New Testament writers. Although that's not definitive because, for example, the book of Esther isn't quoted ever. Um, but here's, here's, here's the answer, right? So how do we know what is canon and what is not? Um, and there are two basic answers the first answer is, um, it's determined by human councils, church councils. That's, where the Roman, that's the Roman Catholic position. How do we know that um, a book is the Word of God or not? We need the official church to tell us, to meet in a council, and then they determine and tell us this is the Word of God. The Protestants, our position, is that human beings do not, do not determine what is the Word of God. The Word of God tells us what is the Word of God. If that seems circular, it is. And we'll, we'll, let me unpack it a little bit for you. So the Protestant answer is very, uh, the short answer is that the reason why the Apocrypha is not in the, uh, is not in the Bible is because it's not Jesus' Bible. Jesus affirms the Hebrew Bible, but he does not affirm the Apocrypha. So there's all kinds of places where Jesus talks about Scripture. For example, John chapter 10, verse 35. He talks about Scripture cannot be broken. When he says Scripture, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Tanakh. He's talking about the Law and the Prophets. A lot of times he'll talk about the Law and the Prophets. This was to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. I have not come to annul the Law and the Prophets. What is he talking about? When he says the Law, that's the word Torah. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible. The Prophets is everything else, right? Um, The historical books and then the the prophetic books. So that's the short answer. Um, But then that's like, you know, more questions are raised, right? Which is, okay, how, how do we even get the Tanakh? How do we get this? Okay, so Jesus affirms this, but how do we even get the Hebrew Bible, right? So at, at a certain point, the Hebrew Bible was an open book, right? Here comes Malachi the prophet. He writes his book, and then it gets added into the Hebrew Bible. How did that process happen? And the answer is, there was no council. There was no committee, there was no religious le- authoritative leadership that decided it. How did the Book of Malachi get added to the, uh, the Hebrew Bible? And the answer is that Malachi claims to be the word of God, so it's self attestation, it's self uh, attesting, right? And then the people hear God's word and recognize it and accept it, but they do not recognize and accept any other book because it's not the Word of God. Aren't there other books that claim to be the Word of God? Yes, but God's people know, can recognize that it's not, right? Um, So for example, uh, let me just give you a New Testament example. Jesus says in John chapter 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. So if you're Jesus' sheep, you can hear his voice. That's how we know um, all these additional books, for example, uh, uh, that were not included in the New Testament, like the Shepherd of Hermes, the Didache, um, all kinds of other interesting books, like the Gospel of Thomas, um, we recognize, we hear it's not God's word, it's not God's voice. So it's not authoritative, uh, uh, the word of God. But we hear and recognize the New Testament, uh, the 27 books. And so it's sort of, it's sort of this organic process where the, God's community, God's people, Broadly recognized and accepted, the Tanakh. We don't actually have a list of the Tanakh until after Jesus died, right? There's a, there was a Jewish council that finally formalized it, but they were just recognizing what was already commonly and broadly, widely accepted by all of God's people. All right, any questions? So this is why we don't accept the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon claims to be the Word of God, but it's not. The canon is closed. Um, God's people recognize can hear His voice. Yes. But aren't there different groups of quote-unquote God's people who claim to hear God's voice? in books, and so... Right. So the Roman Catholics accept the apocrypha. Right. They are mistaken. <laughs> Uh, The reason why they're mistaken is because the church is a corrupt church. Is the Protestant understanding, right? Um, They have an agenda in accepting the apocrypha, for example. Uh, One of the big disputes in the Reformation was the existence of purgatory. Protestants will say there is no purgatory in Scripture, and the Roman Catholics will respond, "Yes, there is." First Maccabees, and then Protestants say, "What are you talking about?" First Maccabees is not canon. So a lot of the doctrinal disputes then go back down to what is scripture, right? What is the word of God? Um, and I would argue that the Roman Catholics only came up with the Council of Trent to affirm the Apocrypha books to defend these additional later tradition-based doctrines like purgatory that came out of you know, medieval imagination. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. All right. Any other questions? All right. All right. Um, Okay. I actually did a three-part Sunday School series on the Bible um, in 2014. You can go back and look at it uh, if you're interested on the whole issue of canonicity and so forth. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God, right? So let's go into the uh, New Testament now. Let me just give a very brief background. Here's the timeline. Um, 538 B.C. is uh, Cyrus's edict that the people could return back to uh, Jerusalem. And so what happens is, here's the setting, right? This 400-year setting, 400 or so year setting, um, 500 years actually, um, is that the prophets, we looked at this in the, uh, the, uh, the, the major and minor prophets section, The prophets promised God's people that they would return from exile back to Jerusalem. And it wouldn't just be people returning. It would be a glorious restoration. Um, The people would dwell in peace and prosperity. All of the enemies would be subdued. Uh, The Davidic king, this righteous king, would come and reign forever. It would be um, a worldwide kingdom um, and, uh, and so forth. But what happened is the people returned from exile and they're kind of hobbling back into Jerusalem. And then they rebuild the temple, but it's like a shoddy replacement. There is no Davidic king. They're still under Persian rule. And then they're surrounded by their enemies who constantly oppress them. And so God's people are weary. They're they're longing for a deliverer. And then what basically happens is a long period of disappointment. After the Persians... Um, the Greeks come into place. Who is the great ruler who started the Greek rule, period of Greek rule? Yes, Alexander. So Alexander the Great you know, beats the Persians. So he establishes the Greek rule. So the, 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 um, the Jewish people in uh, Israel are under Greek rule. Then Greek rule becomes so oppressive that there's a brief revolution um, by Judas Maccabee. Uh, Maccabee means hammer, so Jude, Judah, I'm sorry, did I say Judas? Judah the hammer. Um, and then for a brief 100 years, you have sort of semi-Jewish independence, but um, there's all kinds of problems. There's corruption. Um, there's, still not, there's still poverty and, uh, and famine. And then eventually the Maccabean rule, it's, it's called the Hasmonean kingdom. They're conquered by a Roman general, Pompey. And then Roman rule is established. The Romans don't like to do direct rule. They like to establish a puppet. Um, somebody who's local, who has some semi-legitimacy, who they can rule through. So that would be Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is ruling, and that's the setting of the Gospels. And so the people are waiting for a deliverer, waiting for God's Messiah. They're waiting for all of these promises to come into place. So that's, that's the setting of the uh, Gospels. So let's go into the Gospels. Uh, the four Gospels, um, in terms of the timeline of the New Testament, they, 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 they fall at the very beginning of the story, um, before, obviously, the starting of the church. But they are actually, uh, chronologically speaking, among the last of the New Testament written. Um, the earliest New Testament documents were actually Paul's epistles. We think Galatians was the first uh, New Testament document written. This is important because um, there's a popular misconception that in the Gospels, Jesus' divinity is a little bit veiled. Um, It's not quite super direct, especially if you exclude the Gospel of John. And so if you just take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't quite seem to come out and say he's divine. And whereas in the epistles, it seems to be much more direct, much more um, overt. So a lot of people say, well, it sort of developed. The beginning of the church you know, it wasn't clear that Jesus was the Messiah, but then later on they discovered that he was the, I mean, that it wasn't clear that he was divine, and then later on they discovered that he, he is divine. If you read the Da Vinci Code, um, that's sort of the premise of the whole story. But everyone is forgetting a major, major, major um, fact of how everything was done, which is the Gospels were written last. <laughs> the veiled divinity of Jesus was written last, and it's not veiled. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, the epistles were written first. So the the documents that state Jesus' divinity, the clearest, the most overt, the most unmistakably, were the first New Testament documents. Meaning, what does that mean? It means from the very beginning, the New Testament believers, the early church, believed in the divinity of Jesus. This is, I think, uncontestable. Um, All right, so uh, let's talk about the Gospels. Uh, Why were they written down? They were written down because the eyewitnesses were starting to die. Um, previously, the 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 uh, the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus, was carried along through oral teachings or oral traditions, oral memory, um, but uh, uh, and then you know you had you had the living eyewitnesses saying you know this and this story about Jesus, but they were starting to die. So the Gospels were written down, and the Gospels contain all kinds of little clues that they're clearly drawn from eyewitness accounts. So uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, books. For example, um, about two years ago, I read Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. Super excellent book. Um, And so he makes these observations. He says, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's that scene where Jesus is carrying the cross in Jerusalem. And then it says that um, there was a man who happened to be at Passover named Simon of Cyrene. And so they conscript Simon of Cyrene. And then in the Gospel of Mark it says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Which you wouldn't think makes any sense in telling the story, right? Like why is it important that he's the father of these two random sons, Alexander and Rufus? And so most people think this is a reference to the fact that Alexander and Rufus are in the church. They were members of the early church. So the gospel writer Mark is saying, I talked to Alexander and Rufus. You know, Alexander and Rufus, right? Their father, right? He was there. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an amazing fact, right? Simon of Cyrene was there. He was just minding his own business. Then he swept into this drama of Jesus being crucified. He carried the cross. He stood there at the foot of the cross and saw the Savior and Lord die, right? Here's another uh, example. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is in the uh, garden praying and then the the soldiers of the Sanhedrin come to arrest Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the Roman soldiers, it says that Peter cut off the ear of the high priest. His name was Malchus. Now why again? Random, right? Why do we need to know that the servant of the high priest whose ear was cut off and then remember Jesus heals his ear, his name was Malchus because Malchus was a member of the early church. He was an eyewitness. He's like, I was there. I saw Jesus in the garden, and my ear was cut off. Peter. (laughs) Um, And then it was healed. Um, All right, so um, so, so let's begin. uh, We're going to read Luke chapter 2. It begins in the context of Roman rule, and uh, in verse 1, it talks about Caesar Augustus, and that's a very significant um, notation, and I want to briefly explain the whole history of what's going on with Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was Rome's first emperor, and he became the emperor after 30 years of civil war. This is very important to understand. The conflict began uh, with his adopted father, Julius Caesar, Um, he he had the Civil War with the senatorial army, he emerged victorious, then he was assassinated, then war broke out for multiple decades, finally at the defeat of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, 30 years of Civil War, finally there was peace. The United States had Civil War, uh, who knows how many years was the American Civil War? Four years. Four years of devastating conflict The whole nation just collapsed afterwards, right? We never want to have battle again. Um, The Roman Empire had thirty years of devastating, you know, the best Roman legions against the best Roman legions, crashing again and again for thirty years. uh, uh, um, Octavian, the son-in-law, the the adopted son of Julius Caesar, emerges as the emperor. So when when Augustus finally reigns in peace. Do you know what he was called? He was given labels. He was given titles. He was called Prince of Peace, Savior of the World. His victory, right, when he finally emerged victorious, beating Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, um, he sent runners, he sent messengers all throughout the Roman Empire. Because the whole Roman Empire, they're just waiting. Who's going to win this battle? Is it going to be a definitive battle? Because if Mark Anthony somehow escapes and carries on the battle, then it's going to go on another five, another ten years of war. So, the, so runners, messengers were sent out, and then the messengers carrying the news of, of um, Octavian's victory, right, who became Caesar Augustus, it was called the euangelion. The euangelion means the gospel, the good news of Caesar Augustus. After uh, he became the emperor, the senate t- uh, gave him the title Son of God. Because Julius Caesar, his father, was declared to be divine. He was declared to be a god. So so Augustus, you actually have coinage from the time Caesar Augustus where it says son of God, right? Caesar Augustus, son of God. Now, that's the backdrop. He's prince of peace, savior of the world, son of God. Now let's read Luke chapter 2. I'll read it to you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the Greek word euangelion. Of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So you have to understand that the opening of the New Testament has all kinds of political language that really resonated with the people of the time. Because the people in that time, they're constantly hearing Roman propaganda about the peace of Rome, about the savior of the world, uh, the Roman emperor, and the Bible is declaring a different savior, a different peace. And so you have a story of these two kings. One is a pretender king, he's sitting in Rome, and then you have the true king, but Look, look at the sign. This is, why it's like, it's so, this is why verse 12 is so... We sort of think of verse 12 as all sweet. It's, we think about Christmas. But it's really loaded with a lot of power. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the true king, God's king, is born in humility and loneliness. And now we also understand why the uh, early Romans th- uh, saw the early Christians as a threat. Because the Christians were going around saying... Um, yesu Kyrios, that means Jesus is Lord. And they would, they would refuse to say Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. So that had a lot of political implications. They wouldn't acknowledge um, the universal uh, lordship of Caesar. They acknowledged the universal lordship of Jesus. So the Romans said, well, this is a rebellious political threat. We must crush these early Christians. Um, any questions on that so far? All right, um, let's go quickly through the points. The purpose of the Gospels is so that we would believe in Jesus, John 20, verse 31. Uh, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, we're going to first look at the synoptics. So we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, sin means same. Um, optics means look or view. So these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Um, have very similar feeling to them. Um, They have many of the same stories, same sequence of the stories, even similar wording. Um, The Gospel of John is very different from the three synoptics, and we'll look at that at the end, if I have time. We'll see. (laughs) I reserve the right to just stop at somewhere. All right. Um, All right, so let's look at first the Gospel of Matthew. Um, The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, also called Levi. A lot of times the disciples have two names. The reason why is because one's a Hebrew name and one's a Greek name. Which one do you think is which? Matthew, Levi. Levi is the Hebrew name. Matthew is his Greek name. Yes. Um, He was a tax collector. And uh, the Gospel was written to a Jewish audience. We know that because there's all kinds of textual clues. For example... He alone of all the Gospels calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. Um, This was to to be sensitive to Jewish sort of sensibilities. Um, The Jews did not lightly evoke the name of God because God was so holy and great. So they would find other words that would refer to God but in a sideways way. So so therefore, this is the kingdom of heaven. Um, A distinctive of Matthew, and by the way... um, I'm going to talk most. I'm going to focus on the distinctives rather than focus on the main message of the Gospels, because all the Gospels have one main message, which is God's King has come at last to save the world and establish His kingdom. Uh, But here's the distinctive of Matthew, which is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises to Israel. So this is huge. Uh, I'm 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 going to have fun unpacking this. Um, So one of the clues is if you look at the genealogy of Matthew, right? So you have, there's two genealogies in the Gospels. There's Luke's genealogy, and then there's Matthew's genealogy. Luke's genea- genealogy is the most comprehensive. It goes all the way back to Adam. So Luke's Gospel is for the whole world, all of mankind, everyone under Adam. Uh, Matthew's genealogy goes all the way back, and where does it stop? David. Close. Good guess. It goes all the way back to Abraham, right? The beginning of the promise to Abraham's family. So that's Matthew's focus. Um, One of his favorite phrases that you'll see again and again is that it might be fulfilled. Let me just write this down. Fulfilled. Um, It's the Greek word plerao. It means to to fill up, like in a cup. So imagine this is a cup. (laughs) Um, Okay, and here's the water. And then it needs to be fulfilled, right? Fill up. Um, here's another concept. Um, imagine how you have a story and then if you stop in the middle of the story, you're like hanging. You want to know how the rest of the story develops, right? Like for example, in a church courtyard, there was a giant stone with a sword stuck in it and it's, and it read, whoever pulls out the stone will be the rightful king of England. And then you're like, is that the end of the story? It can't be, what's next? And then there was a little boy named Wart. He comes along. He pulls out the sword. He's Arthur, the king. So that's what it means to be fulfilled. Here's another metaphor that I thought of, which is, well, this is a really... Th- th- I might be in deep water because I, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so in music, music theory... Oh, we have some musicians. <laughs> All right. So I'm trying to explain the concept of fulfillment, right? What does it mean to fulfill? So in... John, you tell me, okay? So when you have um, harmonic, there's something called harmonic tension where you, you, where you play a series of chords and then if you stop, you feel unhappy and uncomfortable. And then you need the next chord which is to resolve the tension, right? Yes, so John is nodding, he's a trumpet player. Um. <laughs> right, so that's the concept of fulfillment. The concept of fulfillment is you tell the beginning of the story, you fill the water up halfway to the cup, and you're waiting for the rest, the fulfillment of it, okay? John, I mean, so Matthew, he's really big on this concept, and I'm going to show you an example of it, or two examples. Uh, Matthew contains the longest and most extensive quotes in the the Old Testament. Um, This is probably why he's the first gospel, because he's the bridge gospel between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, Let's read Matthew chapter 2. And then we'll talk about this concept of fulfillment. Uh, and Joseph rose. So, so what happens is um, Herod finds out that uh, this uh, Messiah child is born in Bethlehem. He gets enraged. So he's going to send his soldiers to, uh, to, kill, um, to kill Jesus. But Joseph receives a vision right, to, to flee to Egypt. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Listen to this. This was to fulfill, play what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That is a quotation of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. We're going to come back to it, okay? Because it's very, very interesting. By the way, if somebody ever asked me, what is your favorite verse? My favorite verse is Matthew chapter 2 verses 13, uh, verse 13, 15, out of Egypt I called my son. I'll explain to you, okay? Um, then in verse 16 it says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Here's Matthew's favorite phrase. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 15. All right. So let's go back to Hosea 11.1. 1. It says, the Gospel writer Matthew says that Jesus going down to Egypt fulfilled Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And this has puzzled a lot of people. I don't know how diligent a Bible reader you are, but you know, you're reading Gospel of Matthew, and you say, huh, fulfilled Hosea 11.1. Let me go back to Hosea 11.1. 1. If you read Hosea 11.1, 1, it doesn't seem to be talking about Jesus or the coming of the Messiah at all. The context of Hosea 11.1 is that um, Hosea is talking about this, um, this exile to come. And then in Hosea 11, he's comforting God's people. He's saying, do you remember the story of Exodus? Right? Out of Egypt I called my son, uh, just like I rescued Israel out of Egypt, just 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 as Israel was my son, so I will rescue you out of exile from uh, from a faraway land. Um, so, what does that have to do with Jesus? And the answer is, we have to understand, we have to change our understanding of prophecy, right? Because this is a prophecy. So there's two ways to understand prophecy. One is prediction. Um, for example, Micah 5.2, uh, ruler, a ruler will, will be born in Bethlehem. So that's a very straightforward prediction. Um, Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. And then another type of prophecy is typology. And we're going to talk about this, okay? Because it's a little less intuitive. So what is typology? Typology is all about patterns and models. Um, and it's not a straightforward prediction, right? So we've already looked, looked at this in the Gospel of John. Um, remember when Jesus is speaking with um, Nathaniel. And he says, you will see um, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Right? So Jesus is talking about a certain kind of Prophecy, uh, let me write the word type. The word type just means pattern um, or mold. Um, so you have Jacob's ladder. And what is fulfilled by Jacob's ladder, Jesus says, the Son of Man, right? Jesus. So this is the reality. Um, in technical terms, this is called the antitype. The antitype is basically. Um, like, let's say you're casting metal molds, so the, 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 the cast is the antitype, and then what's, what's, like, imprinted is the types, right? So, Jacob's ladder is sort of, like, the, 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 the pattern, and it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And then, and then we looked at this, uh, was it last week, two weeks ago? I can't remember now. Um, what is it? Uh, uh, the Bronze Story of the Bronze Serpent. Um, remember Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Right? So, this kind, this kind of relationship fulfill, fulfill, okay. There we go. Um, This kind of relationship is called typology, okay? So, Hosea 11.1 1 is typology. Because Hosea 11.1 1 is talking about how Israel is God's child and he was brought out of Egypt. And the reason why Matthew cites this story is because he's saying that the story of Israel is a type. The whole nation of Israel, the whole drama of Israel is a type fulfilled by Jesus. Israel was, uh, is called God's son Uh, out of egypt brought out of egypt to be a light to the gentiles but they're first taken into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years whether they will be god's faithful servant and then here comes along jesus as the but israel failed right here comes along jesus he's the true israel Uh, he's truly god's son he was also tested in the wilderness not for 40 years but for 40 days and he will become the true light that brings light to the whole world. And so the reason why Matthew says uh, Jesus had to go down to Egypt was because he was replicating, he was um, recapitulating, he was um, reenacting the story of Israel, of Israel going down into Egypt so Israel, so, so, so that Jesus goes down into Israel and comes out to, to, to relive the drama. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we mean by fulfillment. Um, It also says that Jesus fulfilled Jeremiah 31.15. At first, this seems like loose association, right? The prophet Matthew is like talking about how the babies in Bethlehem are murdered. He's like, what does that remind me of? (laughs) Jeremiah 31.15, there are babies there too that are being killed. Um, No. Uh, So let me explain Jeremiah 31 a little bit. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah is talking about the the sacking and destruction of Jerusalem. He was an eyewitness. And he's using poetic imagery. Rachel, of course, is Jacob's wife. Jacob being uh, Israel. So all the mothers of Israel is personified in Rachel. And she's weeping. She's crying because her children are being carried off into exile. Her children are being murdered and killed. Um, And so... Jesus uh, Jesus fulfills that story in the sense that, again, Jesus is the true Israel. So everything that happened to Israel happens in the life of Jesus. Just like uh, there was a tyrannical empire, Babylon, killing the babies of Israel, and Rachel's weeping, so we have this tyrannical empire, the Roman Empire, and this tyrant Herod killing the babies of Israel, again, replicated in Jesus' life. So that's what we mean by fulfillment. Any questions there? All right. Let's go to Mark. Uh, this was written by John Mark in the book of Acts. He's the nephew of Barnabas. This is widely considered to be the first gospel. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, if a movie producer av- ever asked me which book of the Bible should we make into a movie on um, which gospel, I would say the gospel of Mark because uh, it's full of action, not as much dialogue. John by far has the most dialogue. Um, dialogue is a little bit hard to carry in movies. Um, it's written to a Gentile audience. We know that because Mark makes all of these explanatory notes in his story. So, for, for example, in Mark chapter 7, he's talking about uh, the tradition of the Pharisees and of washing. And he, he explains in like two verses, oh, and the Jews of that time, they washed everything. They washed their bowls and utensils and couches even. So he's obviously explaining this to Gentiles. Again, characterized by fast-paced action. Mark's favorite word is immediately. This happened and immediately, this happened and immediately. Not as much dialogue. Um, one characteristic of Mark is the messianic secret, which is that Jesus constantly tells people after he heals them or does something in which they recognize that he's the messiah. He, he says to them, shh, don't tell anybody I'm the messiah. Um, the reason for this is that the word messiah had all this political and militaristic language or a uh, meaning. So, he didn't want to be uh, weighed down by that. This is why Jesus uses a more ambiguous title for himself, which is Son of Man. He doesn't use the title um, uh, Messiah um, or Son of David. This is also so that he doesn't come into conflict with Rome until the right time. Um, The Gospel of Mark doesn't have very much of a prologue. Uh, If you look at Luke and Matthew, um, they have fairly lengthy stories about Jesus' childhood. So, At Christmas time, pastors will always preach from Matthew and Luke, but not from Mark, because Mark doesn't give us anything. Mark just jumps right into the middle of the story. Mark chapter 1 starts with John the Baptist, a few verses, and then we're going to read verse 9. It comes into Jesus right away when he's baptized. Um, So let me just read that to you, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, favorite word, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 12, The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, play ra'o, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I just want you to notice the density of action. Um, notice also the wilderness temptation is two verses, twelve verses 12 and 13. Um, M- Matthew and Luke both give us a much more drawn out version, um, 11 and 13 verses respectively. They tell us that there were three temptations. They tell us the dialogue. They tell us what Jesus responded to Satan's temptations. Mark, cuts through all of that and just gives it to us really quick action so this is my always a recommendation if you have a, a, an unbelieving friend who has never read the Bible and you want to give him the Bible for the first time I think the Gospel of Mark would be a good place to start because it's short and lots of action um, all right so let's go to the Gospel of Luke this is my favorite gospel I I, I'm wondering if that's even permitted for a pastor to have a favorite gospel. <laughs> but this is my favorite gospel, uh, written by a doctor who traveled with uh, Paul. Uh, in verses uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he talks about how he w- uh, interviewed all these eyewitnesses to collect the story. He gives special attention to the poor, the weak, and the outsider. So that's his special focus. He's focused on the marginalized. He's focused on the outsider, so you have all of these stories that are unique only to Luke that have that special focus. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the, par- the story of Zacchaeus. you guys know the story of Zacchaeus? He's the, um, the, the tax collector, but he's really short. And so he, Jesus is coming by, so he climbs up the tree and you know, because nobody would let him through because everybody hates Zacchaeus. But then Jesus sees Zacchaeus up on the tree, and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, let's have dinner tonight, right, and so it's, it's a wonderful, beautiful story, um, only in Luke do you get the story of the shepherds at the birth of Jesus, and then um, a major theme in Luke is reversal, the first will be last, the last will be first, that's in all of the Gospels, but Luke has it by far the most, in fact, Luke puts it even in places where My personal opinion, it doesn't seem to fit or work. (laughs) But he's always saying it, right? Because reversal is his major theme. And you'll see it here. Here's the distinctive of Luke, um, his special attention to the poor and to the outsider. You can compare that in his Beatitudes. We all know that Matthew 5 is the classic Beatitudes, but a lot of people don't know that Luke also has his version of the Beatitudes, but his version of the Beatitudes is much more punchier. Um, It's much more... um, um, soul shaking right so let me just give you some examples so first verse of Matthew 5 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven identical concept in Luke blessed are you who are poor uh, verse 1 of Luke 6 blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God what is missing or what's the difference in those two versions poor in spirit Ye- poor. yes So Matthew, I don't know if the word soften is the right word, but Matthew gives you the explanation. He gives you the cliff notes. You know, he tells you, okay, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to experience your poverty of your sinful situation and how you need God. But Luke doesn't help you. He doesn't hold your hand. He just says, blessed are you who are poor, period, right? And then Luke throws in the woes. Go all the way down to the second paragraph. It says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe is the opposite of blessing. So curses, right? So he, he blesses the poor and he curses the rich. Or let's go down to the fourth line in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Look at the second line of Luke 6. 1, of Luke 6. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied, right? It doesn't say hunger and thirst for righteousness, it just says hunger. And then look at his woe, uh, second line in the woes, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry, right? So, um, so Luke is much more direct, he's much more concerned about um, justice for the poor, he's, much, he's thinking about the outsider, and he's very like confrontational, I think that's the word I was trying to look for, He's confrontational to the power structures of the status quo, and he wants to shake you. He doesn't want to help you by saying, oh, I can be rich as long as I'm poor in spirit. That's true, but he doesn't want you to go there quickly. right? He wants you to really wrestle. If you're rich, are you near the kingdom of God, or are you self-satisfied and depending on your wealth um, to give you meaning and identity in this life? Um, Any questions there? One question people have is, which version is true? <laughs> which of the Beatitudes is correct? Well, um, one answer could be that, um, you know, Jesus as a rabbi, you don't, you don't, you don't um, say something new each and every time. You're traveling around and you have your set sermon, <laughs> your set speech, right? So almost certainly Jesus said the same lesson, the Beatitudes, over and over and over again. There's a couple of other details that make it confusing. For example, in Matthew 5, Jesus is on a mount, on a hill. And in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, Jesus is on a plane. So there's different settings. So some people say, well, these are two different locations, two different places. One time, Jesus kind of spiritualized it, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another time, he was feeling punchier, so he just said, blessed are you who are poor. Um, that's possible. Another possibility is that, um, uh, what is it, Matthew and Luke, they, they were taught by Jesus. Um, they were told to deeply um, ingest and deeply meditate on what Jesus was saying. And so that when they were writing their Gospels, they were free to, 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 to present the essence of Jesus' teaching without having to so rigidly, literally or like a, like a journalist, record everything that was being said in exactly the way it was said. Does that make sense? So that it's a theological way. So it could have been that Jesus said only Luke 6. And then Matthew is helping us to understand what Jesus means. Or it could be, it could be that Jesus just said Matthew chapter 5. And then Luke wants to really punch you in the face. And so he takes out the sort of the spiritual explanation. I think the best way, so so one of the ways that people have tried to deal with this is called harmonization. Harmonization is where you take all the different gospels, contradictory accounts, and try to weave the one true story, which I think is a terrible disaster. We shouldn't do that. Instead, we we should respect the integrity of each of the gospels. So when you're reading Matthew, just read Blessed are the Poor in Spirit and just understand it like that, right? Don't think about Luke necessarily. Ooh, does Luke contradict Matthew? And when you're reading Luke, just let Luke teach you. Let Luke punch you in the face, right? Um, so, So don't worry about contradictions because the four gospel accounts are all perspectives on the life of Jesus. Each perspective is true, but no perspective will be identical which is actually really comports well with how reality is interpreted anyway, right? This side of the room is, 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 is understanding the lesson a little bit differently than this side of the room. But you, you're not wrong, and you're not wrong. You're both true. But there is no, like, like, one objective standpoint. Does that make sense? All right. Any questions there? All right, I couldn't get to John or Axe, which means... The 10 weeks is going to become 15 weeks. <laughs> um, all right, let me, let me close in prayer. Almighty God, we give you praise. We give you thanks that you've given us um, such rich material in your word. Um, we can never exhaust it. Um, we can study it, and it will delight us. It will thrill us for the rest of our lives. Um, I pray that we would have that kind of attitude and excitement and eagerness to be fed to read for ourselves, to study, um, and then to live it out, um, to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.